Renaissance, baby. What? What? I, if we I are, may, uh, yeah. If I may, you may. I feel like mm-hmm. this should be our last show for everything, because what we're going to say is there's no gods, there's no purpose, there's just atoms. Go live your life. It doesn't matter what you do. Go live honorably, simply. Have your friends. Fuck it. Does it matter? So I, I don't feel like podcasting or anything else is needed maybe after this episode because it's all what you make it. What's the point? I think that's why we podcast. Okay, this we'll is keep going. you and me hanging out, yeah. having a good time, right? This right. Is, we are the ultimate Epicureans. We just, you know, okay, Hand so talk, our, our garden is yeah. international. But yeah, yeah. you and I spend our week reading about stuff that we find enjoyable, and then we get together and talk about it and share it with our friends. It's, That's basically... It's uh, the new garden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in our last episode, we um, read out sections of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things. In this episode, I want to talk a little bit more about Epicureanism and how and why the Christians had to destroy it. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, the Villa of the Papyri in Herculaneum is thought to have been owned uh, at one point uh, by Lucius Calpurnius Piso, mm-hmm. uh, Caesaronus, as he's sometimes called, the, the father-in-law of Big Jewel. <laughs> right. Now, uh, Piso himself, it is thought, perished around about a year after J.C., uh, mm. 43 BCE, mm-hmm. basically because he disappears from the historical record yeah, around about that time. fades away. He, he, he last turns up, he's trying to negotiate a peace uh, between Mark Antony, Octavianus, and Cicero. Mm-hmm. He's going backwards and forwards sort of as a, an ambassador, an embassy between the, these parties. I think, you know, if, from recollection... Um, in that period, you know, we, we talked about this on the Caesar show, but for people who haven't heard that in a while, um, after Caesar was assassinated uh, by Brutus and Cassius and the conspirators, Mark Antony, friend of Caesar's, um, <laughs> basically positioned himself as the leader of the Caesar camp. Right. Um, fulfilling Caesar's last wishes. But one of Caesar's last wishes is he gave... Uh, I think half or two thirds of his wealth to his posthumously adopted grand nephew, great nephew, um, Octavianus, who's 18 years old. And he turns up in Rome and he's like, Hey, um, (laughs) where's my money? I I want to be here. Where's my money, bitch? And (laughs) Mark Henry goes, Who are you? I'm I'm Octavianus. I want my money. Who? And Andy's like, look, fuck off, kid. I've got real things going on here. I've got a civil war here. brewing. Uh, yeah, men are talking here. Fuck off. Oh, hey. I'm not very happy about that. Um, I'm going to, if you're not careful. I'll be back. I might put together an army myself. And we might have me to contend with. And Andy's like, yeah, sure. What? Somebody stomp on that kid. He's just annoying. <laughs> and then Cicero, who doesn't like Mark Antony, Cicero famously said, I'm going to use Octavianus and then discard right. him when I'm done with him. Oh, like a condom. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> Octavianus becomes Augustus and uh, Cicero's dead. He has the last laugh. Antony's dead. Yeah. And Augustus has the last laugh, yeah. Well, so, um, yeah, the last we hear of Piso, yeah. he's trying to negotiate a settlement between the parties. Well, I just find it interesting that Piso is going back and forth. Um, it, it, and, and whether you're Cicero or whether you're Antony, um, sometimes you don't like the messenger. You, maybe you assume or you fear that they're taking the other person's side. And the way that Cicero meets his end, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the sides just had Piso Removed that. That's just pure speculation. But the fact that he just kind of disappears um, is suspicious, mm. to say the least. Well, you know, he may have got somehow caught up in the uh, second triumvirate. I mean, I right. do recall that 
during the Civil War, he wasn't on Caesar's side mm-hmm. for at least a while there. He wasn't uh, friendly to Caesar. I think he was a bit of a dick. Right. I seem to recall. Let me just uh, pull up the old Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, he might have ended up as prescription. That's what I'm thinking. Um, At the outbreak of the Civil War, Piso offered his services as a mediator, but when Caesar marched on Rome, Piso left the city uh, as a protest against Caesar marching (sighs) on Rome. So probably wouldn't have been looked upon favourably by Mark Antony, at least um, after the creation of the Second Triumvirate. And yeah, I, I think probably they probably he probably fell around about the same time Dickero did. Yeah, yeah, I would be surprised. Um, now Cicero, before all of this, had written about Piso, who he obviously wasn't on good terms with because Piso was part of the Caesar camp. And as I recall mm-hmm. from our our Caesar series. Dickero didn't really like Caesar, um, <laughs> right. but, uh, you know, he, he played the game from time to time. He was like, oh, fucking Caesar, you're yeah. the greatest <laughs> thing that's happened since sliced bread, and that hasn't even been invented yet. But I tell it's you, when year. it is invented, yeah. it won't be as good as you, because you're the fucking <laughs> best. Uh, where would we be without you, JC? And then when Caesar was assassinated, Dickero was all like, oh, why didn't you guys invite yeah. me to be part of the game? Yeah. I would have... Stuck the knife in. I hated him more than anyone. Yeah, in like Flynn. Yeah. So he um he wouldn't he wouldn't have been friendly with Piso except when Piso left, but it was all too late then. So he apparently uh, depicted Piso at his villa in Herculaneum, <laughs> right? Basically sitting around, drunk, naked, singing yeah. dirty songs. Yeah. Uh, amid his tipsy and melodorous Greeks. Oh, that's not Right, but judging from the contents of the you know the remnants of the library that have been found there, more likely he was sitting around discussing Epicurean philosophy, uh, eating sim- simple meals and uh, living in a luxurious villa. But but <laughs> at least talking simply about deep philosophical mysteries. Yeah, because if it was his villa, obviously he had a huge Epicurean uh, library, and he probably would have uh, subscribed to that. And I think we've said this in previous shows. I mean, the Romans, and and I would call it an uh, inferiority complex, but the Romans didn't think much of Greek philosophy. They were men of action, that kind of thing, whereas all these Greeks sitting around thinking thoughts and writing to each other and having debates as opposed to being more manly – it was just two different cultures, even though the uh, the Romans would end up um, using a, using a lot of the Greek uh, culture itself. But I, I think if it was Piso's place, he probably was an Epicurean. He had the library, he probably had the lifestyle as well. And uh, I, I guess that's something that would be best done outside of Rome, where he could truly relax and explore this this philosophy and try to live it to the, to to his best ability. Now, of course, we don't know whether or not the books that have been discovered, the scrolls that have been discovered, were in the library when Piso died Uh, around about, say, 43 BCE. I mean, Vesuvius erupted 79 CE, so that's 120-odd years later. Um, Maybe it was successive owners of the villa, I'm assuming his descendants, that stopped the book. But as I said in an earlier episode... We do have reason to believe that he was friendly with Philodemus, mm-hmm. who was an Epicurean philosopher, who was a contemporary of his and of Lucretius's, because one of the things that's turned up from the villa is a party invite uh, from Philodemus to Piso, right. saying, hey, come to, come to a party we're having in honour of Epicurus. Yeah. It's going to be fun. I mean, it's at my humble dwelling. It's not like your yeah. fucking palace. Right. Uh, it's up the road. It's going to be simple, but uh, I think you'll have I think you'll have a great time. And we also know that there was a, a bust of Epicurus and some of his writings in the villa. Oh. Uh, so it's it's... A good bet that Piso himself was an Epicurean to some degree. I mean, maybe 
you know, he wasn't fully invested. Maybe he just thought it was something interesting that he should know more about. But um, evidence seems to indicate, just based on the fact that every papyri that we've managed to open and read from there is all about Epicurean philosophy, that he did have a big collection. The, I wanted to... Yeah, I wanted to ask because because one part of the books that we were using had this very interesting scene, and if there's anything that we've, I think, proven not intentionally over over all the different ep- uh, episodes is that one of the advantages supposedly of being a one percenter is that the things that are going on in the country around your your world don't have to affect you. You can escape or disappear into your your fortune or your, your socioeconomic status. And there was this one scene that uh, was being portrayed in one of the references. It was like the Roman elites stubbornly held on to privileges um, that made them elite. And one of those was, was feeling that you're above the fray, that as crazy as things are, you've had all these civil wars, you've had threats from the East, you've had Mark Antony screwed up, you've got the grain prices going up because Egypt, Egypt has been screwed up. The Roman elite still have the right to remove themselves from it, even though they're the ones running the Roman world, and to be able to do whatever they want, to get away from it all, to indulge in whatever thing that that you're into. And if one of the things that you're into is Epicureanism, maybe um, Piso went to his villa, sat around with his friends, ate simply, had these very deep discussions, talked about all these different things, and maybe that was their way of dealing with stress. Some people had religion. Some people would get on their knees and pray to a God or sacrifice or whatever. But maybe these, these, uh, these philosophers would literally get together and talk it out because maybe they could come up with ideas through this give and forth, this give and take of conversations, as opposed to maybe sitting in a room by themselves, trying to think deep thoughts and come up with answers, but to get together, enjoy each other's company and try to, come up with ideas for all these crazy things that are happening in their world. And I just thought that was a neat scene in in this supposed story, if this was his villa at one point. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, he might have been there when he was caught and executed, if, in fact, that's what happened. Um, Yeah. Maybe just getting out of of Dodge. You know, I remember that when – Cicero was caught and executed. Um, yeah. He was, had been at uh, a villa of his down in Formia, which is sort of halfway between Rome and Naples. I think he was on his way to Macedonia or somewhere like that. He was trying to get the hell yeah, out of exactly. Dodge. They pulled, they um, caught up to his carriage or whatever the Roman version of that is. Yeah, yeah. He chopped his head off. Yes. Cut his tongue out, took his hands. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, who knows? But um, what we do know about Lucretius's view of Epicurus, who had died 200 years earlier, is he didn't just see him as a great philosopher. He kind of mm-hmm. saw him as the savior of the human race. Yeah. Lucretius wrote at one point, when human life lay groveling ignominiously in the dust, crushed beneath the grinding weight of superstition, one supremely brave man arose and became the first who ventured to confront it boldly. Ooh. Now, of course, being uh, accused of being an atheist in 300 BCE was still a bit of a dangerous exercise. We know that a couple of generations earlier, Socrates had been forced to drink hemlock, partly because he was teaching the youth things that were turning them into atheists. He was making them question the elite and all of that kind of stuff as well, but partly because he was an atheist. And before all of these guys, there was Anaxagoras, the first recorded Atheist in history, about 15 years ago, I created uh, an annual celebration, Anaxagoras Day, to replace Christmas, where we celebrate <laughs> history's first recorded atheist. Nice. Um, uh, and so, but you know, these guys being a being an atheist, even well before Christianity, being an atheist was considered uh, a crime mm-hmm. in many places. It was very dangerous. Again, for the same reason that we talked about in our. 
I know in this show early on, you know, one of the reasons why under Diocletian uh, they were attacking the Christians is because the Christians were refusing to sacrifice to their Roman gods. Oh, and yeah. That had consequences and implications to state security. Um, so it would have been the same with atheists. Well, hold on. If you, if, if you are preaching atheism and you convert people to atheism, then they're not going to sacrifice to the gods and then the gods <laughs> are going to... Uh, make us lose the next battle that we fight. Right. So being an atheist was a bad deal. So it did take a lot of bravery, even before Christian times, to come out and declare yourself an atheist. And not just declare yourself an atheist, but to teach right. atheism, right, which stuff. I think was one of the reasons why the Epicureans went, oh, no, I mean, <laughs> we believe in the gods. Yeah. Kind of. We just don't believe that sacrificing to them is going to do shit because they don't care because why would a god be bothered? Right. So they, I think they were able to straddle that whole thing a little <laughs> bit. Well, look, we're not atheists. <laughs> we believe in the gods. Right. To a point, right? Um, so anyway, that's why I think why he says he was a supremely brave man. Right. So they basically saw him as almost a godlike savior. Mm-hmm. Now, as as we said in the last episode, the, the the basic idea of Epicureanism was that everything that has ever existed and everything that will ever exist is mm-hmm. made out of invisible but indestructible building blocks. Right. Which they called atoms. And the human race wouldn't get any empirical proof of this theory for more than 2,000 years. Wow. But they deduced. But but they deduced it. Yeah. And you didn't require scientific uh, instruments yes. or even scientific inquiry or really language, to get it. Terms. You just had to, yeah. You just had to pay attention right. to the world around you. Right. You didn't have to have a detailed <laughs> grasp of the actual scientific laws of the universe. Right. Because <clears throat> I didn't. You just had to be able to observe the world around you and go, oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Things are happening. Stuff yeah. is disappearing. Stuff is being built. Um, <laughs> things are heavier than other things. Invisible things can have power like the wind. Oh, I get it. Okay, yeah, that's logical. Yeah. That stands. That makes, <laughs> makes sense. sense. If you take gods out of Leads it, it you makes back sense. to atoms. Exactly. Exactly. I think he even said, "Well, if gods exist, they're made of atoms too." Ooh. So it's all atoms. Oh. And and the basic. It's a bit like when I say to people, "It's all just atoms, baby." Like the basic mantra of the Epicureans was. Atoms and void and nothing else. Right. Atoms and void and nothing else. And if you could repeat that as a mantra yeah. and really incorporate that yeah. into your worldview, your understanding of yourself, human behavior, the behavior of the gods, the behavior of your, your friends and family, it, when you, if you realize that it's just atoms and void being the absence of atoms. Right. And nothing else. Yeah, it all goes away. It all goes away. All the fear of the future goes away. Guilt, resentment, anxiety, depression. (laughs) All of these things that come from a misunderstanding of what's going on. When you realize and you fully embrace and accept Mm -hmm. it's just atoms doing the things that atoms have to do... And it's got nothing to do with what humans like or don't like or want or don't want or gods want or don't want. It's just atoms obeying some sort of mysterious laws of atoms. Yeah. Eventually, all of that other shit disappears and life it becomes a joy. Right. Because you're just accepting things are happening because they have to happen. I did that w- way. Exactly. I did want to drill down just for a second because that was the one thing when I was reading over this, that was the one thing... Um, in a way that was was different from your uh, from your three illusions book because you pre- you both pretty much say the same thing now obviously you two thousand later has been able to read works of people who have you know the ability to see incredibly small things and and, and image, images and all that kind of stuff 
so we, I guess, and I'm not even going to pretend to understand this stuff, but these guys are saying back 2,000 years ago, or actually more than that, you've got these little tiny atoms. We don't know exactly what they are, and some are big or some are or whatever. We don't know anything about it, but we know there's a process, and we know they interact. We don't understand at all the process, the hows, the whos, and the whys of, of their interaction, but we know they pretty much interact and make shit happen. Whereas today we can say, oh, it's, and I'm asking you, I'm not telling you, it's, it's, I guess it's pretty much the chemical processes or is it the laws of physics or what, from what you know, what, what were they missing as far as the interaction between the atoms and the, the cause and the effect with these atoms? Well, yeah, I mean, they weren't, I mean, they didn't have an understanding about chemistry or physics right. um, like we do today or, or quantum physics but ah. they didn't need to you know sure. they, they guessed they guessed the implications of it without knowing the mechanics which makes it all the more incredible it. sorry go ahead it does yeah I mean it's astounding uh, I mean and we don't even understand obviously the full mechanics of um, all of it today right. I mean we, we, we've made a lot of progress in the last hundred years or so but there's still things that elude us but they could, they didn't need that. Like, that's what I say to people. Like, you know, <laughs> when I get into deep debates about three illusion stuff, about free will, people go, well, <laughs> I, you know, for people who haven't heard it, and I'm sure you've all fucking heard it by now, but the reason why I s- say that free will doesn't exist is because decisions are thoughts, thoughts are properties of the brain. The brain is made of chemicals. Chemicals are made of atoms. Atoms obey the laws of physics. Therefore, there's nothing free right. about your will. It's every decision you make is determined by the laws of physics. Uh, that's it. There's, there's no if, buts, or maybes, <laughs> or get out of jail free cards involved in that. Right. Every decision you've ever made, ever will make, is 100% determined by the laws of physics playing out at the level of atoms. And then from time to time, somebody will go, oh, but we don't fully understand how consciousness works yet. And I say, and we don't have to, to know that <laughs> however it works, it yeah. obeys the laws of physics. Yeah, there's nothing outside and of there's that. not Right. Yeah. There's the laws of physics. They go, well, what about quantum mechanics? What about indeterminism and yeah. randomness of quantum behavior? And I'm like, well, A, according to most physicists I've read, Quantum, the randomness of quantum um, particles has nothing to do with what happens at the level of atoms mm. um, when, it, when it applies to macro-level objects. Even Heisenberg, in his book on this, said, you know, got nothing to do with it. Forget about it. Like, once, once you're talking about atomic-level interactions, quantum randomness disappears. It, it basically um, statistically evaporates. If it didn't, if yeah. quantum randomness held true at the level of atoms, chemistry wouldn't work. Chemists would all be out of a job because they wouldn't be able to combine chemicals and know what they were going to do because they'd be completely fucking random. You wouldn't be able to right. add two elements of this and one element of that. You couldn't take your uh, you know, two uh, hydrogen atoms and add an oxygen <laughs> atom and know that you're going to get water. Right. It wouldn't work. Uh, you you would be like, oh, what what happened? I I, I thought that was going to give me water. Nah, it's just random. You got mercury, baby. I mean, who knows what's going on? Right. It's crazy. It's completely random. Laws of physics. No, yeah. it's not random. We know that it's predictable. Yeah. Because quantum randomness uh, sort of d- doesn't apply really once you get to the level of atoms. Uh, Secondly, mm-hmm. when people when people bring up quantum mechanics and free will and quantum indeterminacy. I say, well, even if it is random, you still don't have free will. Because if every decision you ever make is completely fucking random, you're not in control. Free will suggests you're in control of your thoughts and behavior. So if it's random, there's no control. If it's determined by the laws of physics, there's no control. (laughs) So either way you slice it and dice it, there's no control. You've never had control you never will have control nobody in your life has ever had control give it up and they go well i don't know i think that maybe and i'm like all right this fuck off (laughs) um you're 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 wasting yeah like like people who start a conversation with me on facebook where you just hate the u.s i'm like that's it sorry you're wasting my time fuck off now yeah 
I, I, I don't have time for conversations with people who just start off the, with bullshit ad hominem attacks. Exactly. Anywho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, oh, we talked in, I think, the last episode about how in, in modern usage, Epicurean means somebody who's sort of pleasure-seeking or at best a connoisseur of the refinements of sensual pleasures, mm-hmm. somebody who has a knowledgeable enjoyment of good wine right. or, or good food or cigars or single malts or mm-hmm. the clitoris. I don't know. <laughs> Does it get applied to sexual things? Goat Are, loving. Can you be an ep- Epicurean lover? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just takes practice, my friend. Certainly. That's what you tell yourself at night. Well, I'm not just a redneck goat fucker. I'm actually an Epicurean. <laughs> Appreciation of the finer arts of so, anal sex with goats. So, you officer, know, if you can get that, it's a highly refined enjoyment. Officer, yeah. if you can get officer. that light out of my eyes, I, I, I explain <laughs> the difference to you. <laughs> I'm a connoisseur, if you will. <laughs> now you made me lose my. Oh, anyway, <laughs> start over. <laughs> Goat's not going to appreciate it. I'm not going to appreciate it. You're not helping anybody here, officer. Just <laughs> turn around. Go on. Oh, Nothing to see. We think it's hour three or something. <laughs> oh, it is hour it three. It is hour three. <laughs> oh. uh, oh, but I digress. <laughs> so, um, uh, and as we pointed out before, that's not the case. Right. Um Epicureanism did talk about pleasure being the ultimate good, the telos, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that kind of pleasure that they were talking about. It wasn't decadence. It was simple pleasures, free, the pleasure of peace and tranquility in your life, the pleasure of freedom from fear and anxiety yes. and guilt and and trauma and and anger, resentment, those sorts of things, that is what happiness and pleasure was all about for the Epicureans. Mm -hmm. Moderation. The joy, the simple simple joy of life without all of the fucking bullshit that people are used to dealing with. The psychological and emotional trauma of life, which is mostly based on a misunderstanding of life, uh, it's based on believing in free will or the will of the gods mm-hmm. and, and making the gods happy and all of that kind of stuff. When you get rid of all of that yeah. uh, superstition and mythology, which is what free will is, it's a superstition, it's a mythology, it's not based on any shred of scientific evidence or reason or logic. It's just something that people were told exists and they go, oh, it must exist then. And then, you know, if somebody like me comes along and goes, it don't exist, they go, how dare you, sir, uh, suggest that I don't have free will. I am offended. Well, do you have any evidence for it? No, but I'm telling you I'm offended that you could suggest that I'm not in control. That's my proof of free will, yeah. And and not only moderation, you know, simple pleasures, that kind of stuff, but even stuff like politics. Like, look, I I think you said something like um, live in obscurity, get through life without drawing attention to yourself, live without pursuing glory or power or wealth, live anonymously. So this guy is literally about keep it simple, Focus on the essentials, let the rest of it go, and that way you get pleasure by avoiding pain. I I know we keep saying it over and over and over again, but I feel like we're undoing decades, or actually in this case centuries or whatever, of what the church or whoever has done by telling us what Epicureanism is and not what it really is. Yeah, 1,500 years years, of uh, of anti-Epicurean propaganda. Yeah. Um, Epicurus once wrote in a letter to a friend, send me a pot of cheese that when I like, I may fare sumptuously. (laughs) That was his idea of living the high life. Feast. uh, Eating. I've got a whole pot of cheese I can (laughs) eat whenever I like. (laughs) We had the munchies. (laughs) Oh, my God. Taylor. Taylor hit me with his latest business idea recently. He said, when when they legalize weed finally in this country, 
Um, he's got a friend whose parents run a popcorn store where they make popcorn. Yes. So his idea is to set up a weed-coated popcorn uh, business that you sell outside of cinemas so people can go in, get baked, and have the munchies taken care of. Boom. While you're watching a movie, you have the joy of it all wrapped up. And I was like, that's that's a pretty good idea, actually. I'd invest in I would that. be. Weed, yeah. weed corn. Yeah. Mm. And. And they're going to call it yeah. pot corn. Oh. I came up with that. It's my pot corn. Nice. That's, that's that? worthy yeah. of a standing bear. And, but j- just to keep pushing this thing about frugality, you know, the garden that we were talking about earlier, there was a motto carved over the door to his garden that urged the reader, whoever was reading, walking by reading it, to linger. For here, our highest good is pleasure. But again, we're not talking about pleasure, pleasure. We're talking about the absence of stress, guilt, fear, dying, displeasing the gods, that kind of stuff. In fact, Seneca, who quotes these words in a famous letter to Poggio, and his friends knew and admired and, and knew what this meant. They knew that the stranger, if and when he came into their garden, would probably be given a simple meal of barley gruel. I don't even know what the fuck that is, but it doesn't sound appetizing. And water. Keep it simple, simple needs, and, and of course all that's going to get bastardized by the powers that be. In one of Epicurus's uh, few surviving letters, he wrote, When we say then that pleasure is the goal, we do not mean the pleasures of the prodigal or the pleasures of sensuality. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically he was saying it was just the simple pleasures. The feverish attempt to satisfy certain appetites, an unbroken succession of drinking bouts or of revelry or sexual love, the enjoyment of the fish and other delicacies of a luxurious table will not lead to peace of mind. And that is the key to enduring pleasure. Absolutely. So that's what he was talking about. But just the very suggestion that the ultimate goal of life was some kind of pleasure was scandalous to Christians who came later. Also, though, I have to say for a lot of pagans Mm. and, of course, the Jews. Right. It wasn't just the Christians that found this abhorrent. Um, You know, the the pagans thought that worshipping the gods was important, as did the Jews and the Christians. But the idea that just enjoying yourself and getting peace. Yeah was the ultimate goal of life, highly scandalous. And so Epicureanism, even though it was popular in certain circles, it was never massive, I think. And I have to say that when I read that part about the about the Jews and the pagans, I was surprised. Of course, the Christians are going to are going to fight this tooth and nail. But I, I guess I didn't think it through far enough because if you're a Jew or if you're pagan and you have your gods and you worship to your gods, or maybe you're told uh, part of your culture is to you know either worship your ancestors or revere them or whatever. And this guy comes along and says none of that matters. It's all stuff that's either you made up or someone else made up, and it won't affect anything you're wasting your time and so to to attack the state even though you don't mean to by undermining it about everything that holds it together sacrifice working for the state you know killing people going out and conquering empires to, for something like this to come along i mean it literally threatens everything that most people are taught to hold dear how how could that go viral, as we would say these days. I mean, it's just not going to catch on and, and, and be that popular. It's going to be a select group of people who either can or have the time to sit there and think about it and go, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense. Everyone else, it's going to, they're going to fight it because it's different from what they know to be the truth. Yeah, I mean, it's not about worshipping the gods or your ancestors. It's not about serving the city or the state or observing yeah. the commandments. It's just about pleasure. I mean, how do you control people with fear (laughs) if they're just uh, seeking tranquility and pleasure? That's not going to work out for anyone. No, no. So, yeah. So um, that is why the Christians, when they took over uh, Western civilization, had to completely destroy Epicureanism. Now, of course, as we know already, nearly everything from antiquity was lost or destroyed. I think I've said before 
that one estimate I read is that we have about 1% of the books wow. that would have been in a library of like Herculaneum or the Library of Alexandra. Mm-hmm. Maybe 1% of the books have survived. Um, at the end of the 5th century CE, mm-hmm. a guy called Stobaeus compiled an anthology of prose and poetry by the world's best authors from the ancient world. Wow. It, he um, had 1,430 quotations in it. Oh, God. Of those, 1,115 are from works that are now lost. Oh, my God. But at least we have those quotes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the vast majority of stuff disappeared. Um, uh, anything written by Democritus disappeared. N- nearly everything written by Epicurus disappeared. And as I said in an earlier episode, he was incredibly prolific, wrote hundreds of books himself. Um, between him and his principal philosophical opponent, Chrysippus, right. who was one of the leading lights of Stoicism, between them, it's said they wrote more than a thousand books. Um, nearly all of that has disappeared. I just want to throw this out real quick. Mm. I'm just going to, this is just a, a little standalone thing, but but circling back to the villa of the papyri, I was thinking about if it mm. was the descendants of Piso, they're all sitting around, they're rich, they're probably ambitious because they're Romans, they're aware and they're quite proud of their social social status, and I just think it would be ironic if they're sitting around discussing this philosophy, if they have actually, to a degree, adopted this philosophy, maybe just taking a break from the cares of the world, of all the craziness that's going on in the Roman Empire at this point, because they are the 1%. But even that, and this is the other part of Epicureanism, it doesn't matter their wealth, power, prestige, ambition, family line, whatever, none of that matters, because one day they will die they will be no more, and even their soul will be gone, and it won't would not have mattered. They will be gone from this earth forever. I just thought mm. I just enjoy the irony. And I don't mean again, I'm not saying that in a very mean, negative way, or or I'm I'm glad that they're dead or whatever, just that these guys are very powerful, very rich, and then and one day they'll be just like us in the ground, decomposing, and their atoms will contribute to some other construct. They were sitting around in the uh, villa watching Vesuvius erupt going, just Adams, baby. <laughs> baby, just None Adams. of it matters. <laughs> just Adams. Fill her up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when Christians were banning other religions and philosophies in the late 4th century, as we've right. we talked about early on in our series when um, – uh, Theodosius the first was the emperor around 390 391 CE and uh, <clears throat> under uh, threats from uh, Saint Ambrose the bishop of mm-hmm. Milan he the was great. sort of forced to officially ban would you say he was raped no the great i mean he was such a, a powerful influential person I was just giving him a title. Oh, I thought you said he raped Theodosius. Yeah. Um, he, maybe, he was forced to ban I, I all the other religions definitive. and philosophies. Certain things survived. Like we know that bits of Plato and Aristotle survived because in some of their writings, they believed in the immortality of the soul, which ultimately you could ah. reconcile with Christianity, the later Christians would go, well, these guys were kind of on the right path. They, they thought of yeah. them as maybe Semi. proto-Christians. If they'd just been born right. after Jesus, they would have understood it all. So that was yeah. somewhat acceptable to the early Christians. But Epicureanism was not right. in any way acceptable. I mean... As I said before, he didn't deny the existence of gods, but he did say that if gods exist, they're concerned only with their own pleasure. They don't give a shit about us. We would be sure. we would be like mice to them. Why would they give a shit? <laughs> now, I'm sure right. that Epicureans uh, in the age of the Christians would have mocked it as being a silly superstition. Um, humans aren't mm-hmm. special. 
uh, and, and if the gods did exist and did interact in the world, why would they make an unknown Jew his special prophet or son? That didn't make any sense. You would have somebody from a civilised population. You'd have a, a Roman or a Greek, Greek king as the prophet of the god. Yeah. Not some Jewish right. hillbilly, some Jew redneck beard with a beard. Why would they? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, Commoner. some of the we we have writings from some of the early church fathers basically attacking Epicureanism. There's a guy called Tertullian, who I don't know if most non-biblical scholars have heard of Tertullian. Um, I, I did a lot of work on him preparing for my film. Um, he mm-hmm. uh, was very very prolific writer in the sort of late second, early third century from uh, Carthage in Africa. Right. Um, he's called he's called the father of Latin Christianity, the founder of Western theology. Um, also considered a heretic by the Catholics these days, uh, unfortunately for him. Oh. Um, but because uh, he didn't really believe in the Trinity um, as it's currently understood by the right. Trinitarians these days. But he was a prolific writer and he, uh, like he admired some aspects, I think, of Epicureanism. Certainly the way that they celebrated friendship, their emphasis on charity, forgiveness, their denial of worldly ambition and that kind of stuff. But the Mm -hmm. atomist side of it needed to be destroyed and the the, the idea of seeking pleasure had to be destroyed because it was uh, antithetical to Christianity. But not just him. Julian the Apostate didn't like them either. Did you read what he wrote? No, please tell me. Well, you remember Julian the Apostate? Um, yeah. He was sort of mid-4th century CE, small break in the uh, succession of Christian emperors, tried to revive mm-hmm. paganism. Unfortunately, he didn't yes. last long. But when he wrote <laughs> up a list of works that he felt it was important for pagan priests to read, he also listed some titles that he explicitly wanted excluded let us not admit discourses by Epicureans, he wrote. So, as I said before, it wasn't just the Christians that didn't like the Epicureans. Even the pagans right. were like, eh, it's a bit out there for us. This whole gods don't care about us thing, <laughs> not sure that's really going to fly. Let's, let's leave them out. Um, the God. Jews called anyone who departed from their tradition Apicuros, meaning an Epicurean. So uh, oh. if you were if you were an outcast in right. the rabbinic community, you were basically insulted by being called an Epicurean. But Christians in particular uh, launched a full scale, full frontal war against Epicureanism. Tertullian wrote that if you grant Epicurus his claim that the soul is mortal, in that the soul dies when the body dies. The whole fabric mm-hmm. of Christianity unravels. If your if your soul dies with the body, what's the fucking point of Christianity? <laughs> we can't have that," said Tertullian. Right. We have to destroy but, Epicureanism. But th- but that's a point of view, which is a good point of view if you're one of the Christians trying to keep the church going. But that doesn't mean that he's right and the Epicurean is wrong. It's just an observation. But I guess it's just one of those things, hey, we've got to crush this because this will destroy everything that we stand for, and let's be honest, our livelihoods. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, you could take that cynical view of it. I, You know, I think these guys are true believers probably. Right, okay. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they, they had to shut this down and make it abhorrent. A bit like, you know, what it reminds me of <clears throat> is the stuff that we've talked about on the Cold War show, how the the, the Christians in the, the Christian leadership in America in the mid-20th century set out to demonize socialism and communism, right. even though the early Christians themselves were communists or proto-communists. Right. And FDR's New Deal was based on 
his view of Christian brotherhood and Christianity and the social gospel and that kind of stuff. The um, the, the the rich elite, uh, the industrialists, the capitalists in the 30s and 40s who hated the New Deal because it was introducing regulations, uh, co-opted through money a lot of Christian pastors and preachers mm. in the United States and got right. them to preach that <laughs> capitalism was uh, Christian. Yeah. And that socialism and communism were anti-Christian. And the Christian preachers were happy to get on board because the communists were preaching atheism. And they're like, well, we can't have any of that make its yeah. way here. So let's uh, demonize communism and socialism. So it'll keep out atheism as well. They, they So the Christians did the same thing with Epicureanism. And they were quite harsh. I mean, um, St. Augustine, Augustine himself... Mm-hmm depicted called Epicurus himself a pig and an advocate of depravity and gluttony, which was also um, the description used by uh, Jerome, who I mentioned in an earlier episode, Clement of Alexandria and Theophilus, these early church fathers, depravity and gluttony. They called it egotistic, no, egoistic, egoistic hedonism. Um. Uh, yeah, they basically slandered it left, right, and said a self-indulgent hedonism right. and godlessness. They referred Jeez. to it as, um, you know, as Tertullian write. If if Epicurus is right and human suffering is finite because you're going to die and your soul will die then what's the point of Christianity? If there's no afterlife, yeah. there's, no, there's no point. Torture and pain has to last forever, or the threat of it, in hell, <laughs> because that's what Christianity is all about. If, if, there's no, if there's no eternity of torture and pain hanging over your head, yeah. then gotta, everyone will just give up. We've got to have something. They're going to have a good time. Yeah, yeah. That's our bread and butter. Come on. So the Christians figured out they had to ridicule Epicurus and his philosophers. They needed to turn it into something that was despicable and disgusting and hedonistic. He was referred to as a madman and a fool and a pig, as I said earlier. And Lucretius, too, had to be completely destroyed. His book needed to be eradicated, oh. and his reputation needed to be destroyed. They had to be depicted as self-indulgent and stupid, insane. As I said, that biography I read out a couple of episodes ago, the only yeah. surviving biographical sketch we have of Lucretius is by Jerome where he says he drank a love potion and went insane and then wrote his book and then committed suicide. Well... The church actually did a pretty good job because we don't know anything about Lucretius's life, and we have the one freaking copy that Paggio stumbles across, tricking his way into the abbey. So as far as that is concerned, the church did a very admirable job of destroying this man's life and his work. Yeah, it's amazing that it survived at all. One copy. Yeah. Only one copy has ever been found. Again... Yeah. Apart from fragments that found right. in the Villa of the Papyri, only one copy of Lucretius, one of the great masterpieces. Even like Cicero wasn't a fan of Epicureanism. He disagreed with Epicureanism. He was more traditional traditional with his religious views of the gods. Yeah. But um, even he admired Lucretius's work. Right. Um, only one copy of it mm. survived. And if Poggio hadn't have gone all the way to the middle of fucking Germany after he lost his job right. in 1417... Right. Rest his life. Chances are it too would not have survived and we would know nothing about it apart from a few fragmented quotes here and there. Yeah. Now, one of the guys who really turned against it and ratcheted up the attacks against the Epicureans is our old friend... Lactantius, the man who invented lactation. (laughs) Um, We talked about him 
earlier in the series. He was the tutor to the son of the Emperor Constantine the First. Right. Um, nice. He is one of the two authors that mention the vision that Constantine had at the before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and all of that kind of stuff. His version mm-hmm. of it was different uh, to um, the vision. The version of it written down by Eusebius, the uh, right. contemporary father of church history, but he had a version of it nonetheless. Now he wrote a series of polemics against Epicureanism. Um, And in these, he acknowledged that it had a substantial following, but he says not because it brings forward any truth, Mm -hmm. but because the attractive name of pleasure invites many. Ah. He said that Christians must refuse the invitation and understand that pleasure is really just a code name for vice. The task of the uh, Epicureans, Lactantius believed, was to draw believers away from Christianity. And his job, he saw, it was to draw them, his uh, Christians away from the pursuit of human pleasure and to persuade them that God was not, as the Epicureans believed, entirely absorbed with his own pleasuring. <laughs> God's not sitting up in heaven jerking off. 24 hours a day to angel porn, as the Epicureans would have you believe. He's not just banging angels left, right, and center. He could. He could. Don't get me wrong. Oh, he could. God. But he would rather come down and uh, rape human women. Well, one human woman, (laughs) Mary. Well, technically, is it rape? If uh, he, she didn't give consent until later, I don't know. Go ask yeah. a Swedish lawyer. But according to me, <laughs> God, no, that's not right. As I call. Because yeah. he knew, because he's omniscient, he knew that right. she would be fine with Conceive. it. He didn't need right, to ask permission on. or consent first. Right. He's a God. Yes. Gods don't need to do yeah. that. Why did he need to rape her in the first place and he couldn't just snap hey. his fingers and make... Jesus appear out of dirt like he yeah. did Adam. Yeah. Don't ask me. I wasn't <laughs> there. I, I don't know. Maybe that that whole <laughs> making humans appear out of clay oh. is a one and done kind of deal. Yeah, it's like a lot of um, other things. One once and you, done. Yeah, once you do that, you can't do it yeah. a second time. That's yeah. why he needed to create Eve out of Adam's rib because That's true. He had used up that man. Yeah. He's a bit like Thanos. You get one click one to slip, make a boom. human out of clay. Yeah. Then you got to come up with a different trick. Yeah, like you know how hard it was to get those first fucking <laughs> Infinity Stones. Woo! He used them all up on that. Yeah, you'd he, have to go out and get more Infinity Stones. And too much. Despite the name of them, there's not an infinite <laughs> number of them. They're very hard, even That's for a true. god to come up with. That's true. Anyway, where was I? Yes, he depicted all the the Epicureans as all insane. (laughs) Anyone who's into Epicureanism is an insane, crazy motherfucker, pleasure lover. Um, God cares about humans like a father cares about his children. And and you can tell that he cares because he's angry all the time. (laughs) Uh, If he wasn't, we know he loves us. Yeah. Because he's angry at us. Yeah, that's how a father. That's how I do it. I don't know about you. It's just that everybody yeah. ignores so I, me. I, yeah, yeah. I'm beating you right now, Fox, because I love you. That's <laughs> tell you how know. I show my. That's that I. That's care. how my father exactly. did it. That's how yeah. his daddy did it before a, him, and that's how I'm I. I'm a one-trick pony. I'm beating yeah. you, covering <laughs> you in bruises, because that's how I show my love. Spare the rod and spoil yeah. the child. That's that's another form of love. Yes, I'm going to have nightmares tonight now. Hmm. Now, when it comes to sex, um, oh, Lucretius yeah. had said, "Look, if if you if you want to if you need to do it, do it. A dash of gentle pleasure soothes the sting." He wrote, "That's true. Like, don't go crazy. Don't yeah. don't fuck a goat. Fuck a goat like Ray." <laughs> Don't fuck a goat. No, don't, that's <laughs> taking it. But, you know, 
<laughs> if you need to slip it in from time to yeah. time, do yeah. it. Slip yeah. it in, get, get it done with it, get it out of your system. Get back yeah. to yeah. The important stuff. If you need to jerk off to some angel porn or a or a <laughs> I'm photo that up. of angel. a statue of Pan banging porn. a goat. Yeah. Just, you're typing, <laughs> looking up angel porn. I guarantee you Rule 34 dictates right. that there is angel porn out there somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm Googling sure. it. Oh, angel porn videos on Pornhub.com. <laughs> like there. I'm looking at it right now. Stepmother has sex with hot stepdaughter. That sounds right. Older lesbian eats sexy young lesbian's pussy. So look, there you go. There is angel porn. I think none of them have wings. I think Angel is the name of the uh, actress. And judging by the hairdos on these videos, I think these are... Filmed in the seventies or early eighties. Uh, I have to have wings. I will. Um, I Sorry. will uh, do my research and watch yeah, these yeah, yeah, in yeah. full as soon as we <laughs> get off this call. Um, <clears throat> right. Where was I? Oh yes, but Christianity. Yeah. Didn't allow a little bit of easy loving. No. Um, you know guilt. And I'm going to finish with this. Um, there's this story that uh, is found in early Christian literature about Benedict, mm-hmm. a pious man. Benedict found right. himself thinking of a woman he had once seen, not a goat, a woman. <laughs> and before he knew what was happening, mm-hmm. his desires were aroused. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> He then noticed a thick patch of pubic hair. No, wait, a thick oh, patch of no. nettles. That's a video. And briars next to him. Huh. Oh, he thought, sexy. <laughs> Throwing his garment aside, he flung himself into the sharp thorns <gasps> and stinging nettles. Oh. Oh. I got ouchie. There he rolled and tossed until his whole body was in pain and covered in blood. That's how you do it. Yet, once he had conquered pleasure through suffering, his torn and bleeding skin served to drain the poison of temptation from his body. No, no, that's just blood. Before long, the pain... Before long, the pain that was burning his whole body had put out the fires of evil in his heart. It was by exchanging these two fires that he gained the victory over sin. Good for him. What worked for the saint in the early 6th century would, as monastic rules made clear, work for others. One of the great cultural transformations in the history of Western civilization was... This Christian idea that the pursuit of denial and pain was more important than the pursuit of pleasure. Jeez. Ass backwards. This, um, this, this story is uh, the story of uh, St. Benedict, uh, the founder of the Benedictine um, order. Right. Um, wow. Uh, as recalled in the dialogues of Pope St. Gregory the Great, I think. Um, so there you go. His life on St. Benedict. So there you go. That That is how, you know, the Christians viewed pleasure. Right. Versus the uh, Epicurean view of pleasure. Yeah, uh, and they needed to they needed to demonize Epicureanism, say they're all crazy uh, devils, and yeah. therefore it was nearly wiped out, but rescued at the eleventh hour by Poggio Bracciolini. Wow, who himself was a Christian. He might not have been a monk. He might not have been. Officially, you know, he was a layman, but still, I wonder once he does sit down and read it, 
what his reaction is going to be. Yeah, well, in the next episode, we will get into the impact that mm. the rediscovery nice. of Lucretius had uh, to the people in the Renaissance period. But that'll be next time, because I have to go watch some angel porn. <clears throat> have to or want to? Refreshing it is to see a girl